Thank you, Amy. Good morning. I'm still, still stuck on the Spafford song, aren't you? My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. And every believer says what to that? Amen. I just appreciate you picking those hymns, Alex. Thank you, Amy, for the blessing of worshiping to get to the point where I'm ready to hear the Word of God. That's the whole, our desire as we spend time in song, as David did of old, uh, to prepare our hearts so that we're ready to hear what the Word of the Lord would say. So I pray that's where you are now. And if you have little ones up through grade four, you'd like for them to be in children's church. I think we have that today. Uh, we, uh, when I always say this, when you're a young church, everybody goes. So when summer comes, you're a young church, everybody hits the road. When you're an older church, everybody comes. And we're a very young church, so everybody's gone. And those who are not gone are downstairs getting ready for the Acts 246 meal fellowship. So for those of us who are here, we will look again into our copy of God's Word to First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians chapter 2 and have the joy of uh, digging into the Word again. And so I'd like you, if you would, turn to Second Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to continue our study of this marvelous portion of Paul's letter. The, the study is a continuing study. If you've not been with us, if you're new, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here, here for graduations and all kinds of fun stuff. And that's a joy the Lord has given to us, a blessing, a common grace from the Lord to all people that can enjoy family and all of those things. And so we're grateful for all of that. Uh, but as it is with the word of the Lord, anytime you read it and you break it apart and you go verse by verse through it, it always is a blessing, no matter if you've been in uh, part of the previous study, or if you're just picking up now, so that's my uh, my desire for you and my prayer for you today. So read in your copy of picking up verse five. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You just read in the copy that you memorize and read every day, or you can find one around you that is this uh, translation, and we'll read it together. Verse five. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Verse six. Sufficient for. Such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, verse 9, for to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything. I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. As we move into our summer fun months, we're reminded of how the simple things in life are really the most rewarding. Time with a family, time spent away from the pressure of daily requirements, uh, relaxing on your deck perhaps, um, a quick swim, a walk on the beach, a hike through the woods, those kinds of things pay rich dividends to our hearts and our minds after a busy year. And in light of our study here in Second Corinthians 2, which has to do with forgiveness, I think we could make a similar observation. It's the simple act of forgiveness that can pay the richest dividends to our hearts. It can immediately unchain you from your past. It can impact your disposition overnight. It, um, it slams closed the open door unforgiveness gives to Satan's influence in our lives and in the life of the fellowship. We, in fact, we could say that a lot of the ground Satan gains in our lives and ministry, if we understand the word of God correctly, is directly related to unforgiveness, and you can evict then a lot of demon trespassers by the acts of demon forgiveness. The act of forgiveness instantly removes the interference from your communion with Christ. Like a good gardener, forgiveness promptly pulls up the root of bitterness out of your life. The simple act of forgiveness unlocks and swings open a prison door with one inmate, and he lets you out. And instead of being a place of chastening and a place outside of the blessings and rich, full fellowship that God wants with you, the simple act of transports you back to the place of blessing. And like those simple things of summer that undo a lot of the stress of the year, so this simple act of forgiveness accomplishes so much. And here in 2 Corinthians, as he did in Ephesians and in Colossians, Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to help the church be as healthy as it can be. So he wants them to experience forgiveness, and so he draws to their minds something from the recent past. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, 5 again. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. 
And so what you have is a scenario here that Paul is exposing and uh, something that's going on, an undercurrent, if you will, in the church. There has been an offense. Someone has offended. Uh, someone has created sorrow. It's the Greek word lupeo. It's perfect, active, indicative. And so uh, it is a harbored unhappiness. It's an established one. It appears to continue on and will continue on if uh, something's not done. It describes the present reality of some in the church. They're dwelling on a heaviness. They're dwelling on a sadness or a sorrow. They're, and what's happening here is there's a continuing harboring of the situation, uh, dwelling on an infraction of a certain person, the trouble they may have caused, maybe the embarrassment, maybe the uncomfortableness that always comes with that kind of thing, maybe um, misunderstandings that come between people. Now, Paul makes it clear that he's not in that group. So he says, he never caused me to harbor animosity, but it appears to be pretty widespread in the church to one degree or another. That's why he says, to all of you, to one degree or another, some unforgiveness is very deep and, and stays down there in a root of bitterness. Others, it uh, comes up a lot more. Both are wrong. That's why Paul says, in one degree or another, if you're still dwelling on this, they're both wrong. And Paul isn't going to point fingers at individuals in the church. He just says, whoever you are, and to whatever degree you're still hanging on to this offense, uh, this whole thing is for you. And so he has the attention of the people he should have the attention of. And those who aren't in this group, they understand Paul is, is teaching them prophylactically so that they don't fall into this type of thing. Now, Paul isn't um, mentioning the name of the person who caused a problem either. So he's not pointing to a certain individual, but it appears that it connects us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to be there today and in verse 1. And that's an individual there that Paul says in verse 6 uh, here in 2 Corinthians, 5, or 2 Corinthians 2, he says, Sufficient. For such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So we saw last time that this is a reference to uh, one in the church body in Corinth. And so back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and you can turn there if you would, because we're going to be there for a few minutes. He says, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you. So there's this, uh, the sense is that this is a general continuing report. That's the idea of the verb there. It's reported, continually reported. Uh, and it's likely he's finding out about this problem from someone at Corinth. So they've come to him. They've, they've noticed the immorality. They've come to him. And the problem was ongoing. Paul had addressed it before. And he mentions that in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 9 through 11. You can look forward there. Paul says this about the situation. He says, I wrote you in my letter. And that's a reference to a letter that we don't have any longer, a previous sorrowful letter. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So Paul says, I'm not talking about not associating with the people in the world. You've got to work there. You've got to live there. Uh, but actually, he says, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. And so he gives them instructions on how to handle this situation of unrepentant sinfulness in the church. And a very similar, similar to instructions he gave in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I think you'll notice a similar approach. Now, we command you, brethren, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. So here he's speaking about, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's speaking about someone who's in open immorality. Here he says you're leading, leading an unruly life. That's the adverb... Uh, at actos, uh, that's a deviation from what's prescribed. So the idea is someone who's deviating from what's prescribed, and then he un underlines that what that is, not according to the tradition, paradosis, that's the standard by which believers align their lives. That's what we get from the word, the paradosis, that's the standard, God's word, which aligns us with God's will. Um, Paul says, listen, I commanded you already that if somebody leaves an unruly life, so they are regularly departing from what would be the understanding of what a prescribed walk with the Lord would look like. That standard you received, he says, from us. So Paul's referring to the apostles' teaching. And then verses 7 through 13, they're parenthetical. So we didn't live this way. We didn't give any examples of living this way. We've given you numerous examples of how to live. And then picks up again in verse 14, and he says this, if anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy but admonished him as a brother. Now, it's interesting that we're going through this passage, and it's a difficult passage to teach. It's one that's hard to hear, because we're so used to, in the church, equating tolerance with spirituality. We think that just letting sinfulness go on and on and on inside the church, open rebellion to the standard, being unruly in life, 
uh, not submitting to uh, the standard which is handed down to us in the scripture. We think that tolerance of that inside the church, that equals spirituality. But I think what we'll find over and over in the scriptures is that does not equal spirituality. Actually, that equals foolishness, pridefulness, and, uh, and ungodliness. And so we're here, Paul says, listen, somebody has caused an offense and you guys are still hanging on to it. It caused a lot of trouble in the church, he says. And some of you are still harboring it. Some, some are deep. Some are, it's out in the open. Sometimes it comes back. All the embarrassment, all the misunderstanding, all the things that went on because of the offense, it's here. And so Paul says, you're going to have to forgive. And so we're at the back end of all of that. So uh, some things have happened and someone's, uh, they've dealt with them correctly. And they're coming in uh, to this area where Paul says, now it's time to forgive. But uh, he's drawing to their mind, listen, don't forget, this is, this is, um, this is the way that we're supposed to deal with these kinds of things. Paul says, I already wrote you a letter before that told you what to do about open immorality in the church or in 2 Thessalonians, somebody who leads an unruly life and not according to the traditions handed down by the apostles. And he says, listen, this is the way we're supposed to deal with this kind of thing. So this is common instruction. And what we find is that they're not enemies in any fashion because they're believers. They're fellow believers who are actively walking in disobedience, living a life not according to the traditions, living a life in an unruly manner, if you just use the other passages of Scripture to describe it. And so Paul is being carried along by the Holy Spirit to address this issue. And it really is an issue of purity in the church, is what it is. And here, if the church was to be pure, they had to say goodbye to immorality, and that's where our guy from 2 Corinthians 2, 5 and 6 come in. It caused an offense. Something happened in the church. It was a pretty big deal. People still remember it. It caused a lot of trouble. And Paul's dealing with this. And so here he tells the Corinthian church what to do. And again, that becomes a model for what churches are to do. And we looked at this issue in some of the instructions concerning behavior of believers in unrepentant sinfulness a number of times uh, already. But if you look back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 6, I've got 8 up there. I'll read the, uh, the upper part and then get right into it. Paul says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, immorality such as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So this is the situation here that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2. That someone has his father's wife, you've become arrogant, have not mourned instead, so that uh, the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Verse 4, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord. Verse 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Uh, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So 1 Corinthians 5, 6 really tells the situation. It shows the uncomfortableness of all of it. Paul says, listen, you haven't dealt with this as you should, uh, and, and so I'm telling you what to do. And so this, is the, this dovetails together with our present passage in 2 Corinthians 2. Now, I would say to you, as we look at that whole thing, and we think about the church, and we think about the modern church, perhaps other denominations which allow a number of things in there that they shouldn't, I think it's, it isn't possible to keep the church pure from this type of behavior if the church doesn't know that it's happening. And so there is, a, uh, there is an admonition, I think, uh, to the church to to understand what's going on in the church and to be watching and be aware of what's going on amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ because we bear their burdens and we, we love them and we are one with them in a body. And so there's this idea that um, it's going on and someone came to Paul, let him know what was going on because he wasn't there at that time and says, so the church has to watch for that type of activity and be concerned about preventing it. And later we'll see it has a job to do as well when it sees that kind of thing in love. So the church has to do these things. Now, there is this... Um, here in the Corinthian assembly was this terrible, flagrant rejection of the simple commands of God here with this individual. And he's living an unruly life, a deviation from the traditions of the apostles. See, they understand how he's supposed to live. Uh, all in the church should understand that. The individual certainly does. And so sin has taken over this guy's life. And he was now living in an improper relationship with this woman who was not a Christian, who was his father's former wife. And, and this is exactly the thing Peter warned the church in general about in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that's a general admonition to the church and to people who know Christ to be on the alert and watch out because the adversary, the devil, is continually looking for someone. In the context here, as we've seen uh, uh, before, 
This is devouring in sin. So the context is your adversary is looking for someone to devour. Uh, he certainly can't dislodge your soul from, from eternity. He can't cause you to be unsaved, but he can cause you to be devoured uh, in your sin if you allow those types of things to encroach. Thought life is where it begins, uh, certain habits that you're uh, involving yourself in, which will put you in a position where you'll continually be uh, tempted by the evil one to disrupt your whole life and certainly your testimony. So you're devoured in your sin. And so this is exactly what's happened to this guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and the context here is that the adversary of every Christian, the devil, hunts for those who he can consume in their sin. So they're already participating in sin, and sin will keep you longer than you want to uh, stay and, and take you farther than you want to go. And it always works that, that way. It always subtracts from your life. And so allowing these things, allowing footholds, allowing be uh, bench uh, holds there in your life allow, peop uh, allow you to be in a position where this can happen. So... Um, and grievously, this guy in Corinth was an illustration of that very thing. And the church was tolerating it. So the church uh, was allowing it to continue to go on, was not doing anything about it. That's the thing that Paul's having the most trouble with. So the sin is certainly troubling to Paul and grievous to him. And, and, but the, the, the thing that was most grievous, I think, to him was that the church was, uh, when the church is interacting uh, with a willingly rebellious believer and not confronting the sin. And this is still very common in the modern church. And, uh, but Paul says, but instead of handling it like you have been handling it, you should have, verse 2, he says, mourned. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 2. He said, you should have mourned. Pentheo, that's, that's the proper attitude would lead to the proper action. When we see it, it's, it's associated with what happens at a funeral, the mourning that goes on when you lose a close, someone close in your family. The grieving and the heartache is the proper reaction to open sin inside the church. And so Paul says, instead of standing there being proud about your situation, or, uh, this happens a lot, keeping quiet about it, not saying anything, just kind of letting it go, he says, you ought to be on your face on the ground weeping because of it. Your heart should be grieving because of what's happening in the church, and, and then you would be in the correct position to begin to do what the Lord has required you to do about it. So the church is not a place, then, where people are in open rebellion to the traditions of the gospel. And again, I say this is a good word to many of our I mean, the denominations that uh, ordain people who shouldn't be ordained and allow people to continue to come who are living in open sin. So I think you can't come away from Paul's instructions and understand uh, that this not be the case. The church is not to be a place where people are in open rebellion to the traditions of the gospel. And the job and the responsibility of the church then is not just to go and attend and sit there and watch what happens, but to seek out the purity of the church. It's everybody's job to do that. And, and this is hard stuff. And it's perhaps the hardest stuff you'll ever have to do. But this is serious business with Paul. Later, Paul will speak of himself in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, and he'll say this, who is weak without my being weak? See, that's the exact attitude that has to come with being part of the body of Christ. Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin with my, my, without my intense concern and with my intense sorrow, see? And that's a sorrow that mature believers have over sin. That's the kind of sorrow that maturity brings when we see it openly inside the church. So in verse 2, he gives them the proper attitude about the unrepentant sin inside the church, which is sorrow. And then he gives the appropriate action for the unrepentant sin in the church. In verse 2, he says, you've become arrogant. You can look in your copy of God's word, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. So this is Paul just summarizing church discipline, see? And I want you, as we go back to these passages, I'd like you to read them. It's important that when I finish this, pa this section, this, uh, this uh, uh, time of teaching the Word, that you don't walk away saying, well, that's, the uh, pastor had a pretty strong opinion about that. My desire for you now, go, uh, 10 years of teaching you, is not that so you walk out the door and say, well, that was a great opinion pastor gave me. My desire for you is that I bring what's in the kitchen to your table without modifying it at all. That you walk out and say, I didn't understand that the Word of God said that. See? Because I think it's easy in our culture to kind of uh, just put things over in a certain corner and say, well, that's how some people, that's what they think about it. These are the kind of arguments you get to have with people in our modern society and everymore. Whatever they think becomes the standard for what's true instead of what being true is the standard for what's true. And it's just a very illogical way to approach it. But when you talk to people and they say stuff, you just think, how did what you think about this become actually the truth instead of just there being a standard of truth. So when we walk out, I want you to understand, so go to the passages with me, would you please? These are very difficult things. The church still doesn't handle it well, okay? Even the modern church. 
first century church wasn't handling it well, Paul had to give a whole bunch of instruction. And I'm going to give you a kind of a cross-section of that instruction today. The modern church doesn't handle it well either. We tend perhaps not so much to openly just be glad that there's so much diversity in the church as it is that we just be quiet. We don't say anything. And both of those are the wrong response. And so I want you to come away with this understanding where Paul is bringing the church, okay? Now, he says you become arrogant and you haven't mourned so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And so he's just summarizing church discipline. Very similar language to what we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says this. And again, as he addresses the individual New Testament churches, he's saying the same thing to all of them. Why? Because they're all, they all have the same struggles. Everybody who's a believer has the same issues they have to deal with. See, There's no temptation you taking you, but such is what? Common to man. What's that mean, beloved? That the difficulties that you're facing are common throughout Christendom. Okay? So it's important to realize that every church is going to face it. Every individual, depending on what they're allowing in their life and perhaps what they're excluding from their life, uh, will find themselves in a position where they can be consumed uh, in their own sin. And Satan tries to make sure that he ruins your testimony and, and uh, takes you a lot farther than you want to go. And so Paul has to deal with all of it. So in Ephesians, he says this, but immorality or any impurity or greed. So again, none of these lists are, are exhaustive, but all of them together give us a pretty comprehensive idea uh, and I think as we looked at the previous passage where it just leads an unruly life, where whatever it is, it's just openly unruly, rebellious against the traditions that we understand from the Word of God. So that's the most general, but here he, he gets more specific. Immorality, any kind of impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Not should it not, it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be named above you. It shouldn't be part of someone who, was, who knows you. They shouldn't be thinking this is perhaps how you are. As is proper, he says, among saints. So just like it is with every church, this shouldn't be part of your life, see? And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And so this has to do with all your thought life, has to do with the way you talk, the way you respond, the kind of jokes that you make, uh, the things that you laugh at, all those kinds of things. They're not fitting, but rather giving of thanks for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So you know this, the unredeemed who do these kinds of things, they have no inheritance, and that marks the fact that they have no inheritance. Their, their deeds expose that, so it shouldn't be part of your life, he says. Let no one deceive you with empty words, so don't in, let anybody tell you, well, this is not a big deal. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are the exact words that bring about God's, that types of, of uh, behavior and words that bring about uh, judgment from the Lord. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Why, Paul? Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of, in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, I, I like verse 10. Um, because this is really what, where all of us are. We're not, none of us are in a place of perfection. We've not, none of us have got to the point where we don't sin anymore, but we desire what? To learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And each of us should be in our walk with the Lord along that road somewhere, learning what's pleasing to the Lord. How do you do that? Well, let the word of Christ dwell in you in all wisdom. You're going to know what's pleasing to the Lord when you understand what his word says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply to me? And you begin to put those things in application in your life, see? So, we're not saying that the church somehow is this pure, completely without sin, every single person. That's not how it is. We're learning how to be pleasing to the Lord. That is the over, over I think, overarching desire of everybody. And we fail and we come back and we do, but the, the direction of our life is learning what's pleasing to the Lord. Where Paul is dealing with is someone who the direction of their life is not learning what's pleasing to the Lord, but doing what is unruly and not consistent with what we see in the word of God. Those are the folks that he says the church has to deal with. Now, sometimes when this is talked about, you know, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Do not, um, you know, no immorality, no impurity, no greed, not even named among you, no silly talk, no filthiness, no coarse jesting, not fitting. Sometimes when we say that and we say, you know, expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness, uh, people will say incorrectly, well, that doesn't sound too loving as if somehow our response trumps the Lord's. Somehow we have a higher sense of tolerance and, 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 uh, and acceptance than the Lord himself does 
in the church and say, that doesn't sound too loving. So I would draw your attention then this very same passage, verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5, where Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So again, a great overarching emphasis, imitators of God. We looked at, we've looked at that numerous times, right? When you forgive, when you bless, when somebody uh, is not nice to you, when you're long-suffering, right? All those kinds of things are a way you imitate the Lord. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he says that and then immediately says, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So obviously... Reacting in love doesn't mean that we react and somehow just ignore what's going on around us in the lives of the believers who are walking in open rebellion, okay? But being imitators of the Lord, we respond as he asks us to respond. So Paul says, you know, you need to get all that stuff out of the church. That's the loving response. The church does its part, and the Lord does his part, and so Paul tells them what to do. So look back at 1 Corinthians 5.3. Would you look there in your copy of God's Word? 1 Corinthians 5.3. He says this, he says, For I and my part, though being absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And then in verse 4 on the screen, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now the idea there is, and this is who he's talking about now in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 5 and following. This is what's happened. So we're going through this process. And this gives us a great, time, a great opportunity to go back and review how this is supposed to look, but it also gives us the seriousness of the issue and how hard it is for the church to do what it's supposed to do, and so how some could still hold on to some animosity and unforgiveness because they think, man, what trouble you made, see? And the idea here is that he, the individual here in 1 Corinthians 5 is acting like an unsafe person because he won't submit to the elders, he won't submit to the church. Uh, and so if that's what he's acting like, then the idea then is to treat him that way. The idea here is that when you put the person out, you treat them like an evangelization project because they're acting in an unredeemed manner. Well, why would you say that? Well, because they won't obey the basic principles that are handed down from the apostles, they're not, they're walking in unruly life. So they're acting like an unredeemed person does, right? Like your unredeemed friend. He doesn't walk in obedience to the word of God, does he? And so this unbeliever, or this unbeliever acts that way naturally. The believer should naturally, as children, desire what's pleasing to the Lord, to seek out those things and be imitators of God, but they're not. They're doing exactly what an unredeemed person would do. And so that's why Paul says they have to be put out. You treat them like an unredeemed person. And that's what has happened to this person Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2.6. Now, verse four, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.4 says, and helps us to understand how this process of discipline works. Paul says then in verse 4, look there, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop right there. Four things to notice about this process, and you can see them uh, in uh, your copy of, of God's Word, and you'll also see that you can jot these down uh, in your notes to kind of help shore up what you should come away with as we look at these things. So the first thing is then the name of our Lord Jesus. And that's a very important, okay? If, you, if you're somehow confused about whether or not the Lord wants you to do this, Paul says, look, in his name we're doing this. It just means everything that is included in the remembrance of the Savior, remembering all he was and all he suffered to bring about salvation in the church, remembering all that he taught, and in particular by his authority and his explicit teaching recorded in Matthew 18, which we're going to look at in a minute. So it always means uh, this is what Jesus would want. Remember, we've seen that as it relates to prayer. Remember when you pray, uh, you know, it's not some special formula when you pray that says in Jesus' name, amen, and all of a sudden everything's going to come true. Okay? That's not what in Jesus' name means. It just means that our desire is to pray along with the will of Christ. See? You're praying in the name of Christ. You're simply asking for what would be consistent with Christ. What would be consistent with what Jesus would want? That's what you're saying when you say in Jesus' name. All this in his name. I just want what's consistent with what you want, Lord. So when you pray, you say that. And so when Paul says this, Paul says in the name of our Lord Jesus, he's basically saying the same thing. Uh, it just means this is what Jesus would want. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we're acting on his authority. So when Paul uses this phrase in this context, it just means that when the church comes together in the name of the Lord Jesus, it means the church comes together to do what Jesus would do if he were there. And here's the question. What do you think would happen if the Lord came to that church in Corinth, Christ came, and there's his church meeting, and there's open immorality in the church, and nobody's doing anything about it, people are being quiet about it, or they're kind of rejoicing because they're, you know, very progressive. 
What did he do when he walked into uh, the temple and everybody was set up to rob everybody? These are people who were called by his name, right? And they're all set up there defrauding each other and, and the money changers are making money and everything. What did he do? He just drove everybody out, flipped over to everybody's table and said, get out. See, because there's a certain standard that the church operates by, see? And this is what it's supposed to look like. Desiring what's pleasing to the Lord, be imitators of God, overarching movements in the right direction, see? But this is not where this person is, see? And when we ask, okay, what do you think Jesus would do if he came here? Well, he would do this same pattern of discipline because it was his pattern to begin with. He's the one who handed it out. Let's keep going. Then he says this, when you are assembled, when you're assembled. And so here's that second part. When you come together to meet, this is going to happen during one of their worship occasions. When the church comes together as a body, it's the folks who assemble together. That's just what he's saying. Listen, those who assemble there with you, perhaps when they're done with the teaching time, this is what's going to happen. This is what needs to happen, Paul says. He's giving them a formula to follow through. And I, he says, with you in spirit. And that's just Paul expressing his love and his encouragement to them, how he longs for them. And then number three, he knows that what's going on here affects him. And catch this, beloved, every other believer is affected too, Okay. He's one with them in thought on this issue, and he knows that whatever's going to go on here is going to affect every believer, not just the ones right there in the church. It's going to affect other ones who watch and see how this is supposed to happen. It's going to affect churches on down the millennia as they read the passages and see what's supposed to happen. And then they go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and realize it worked. And so, very important. He knows what goes on here affects him. I'm with you in spirit. We're together on this. And then he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus with the power of our Lord Jesus. And here's the thing. Under the dominion or under the authority, this process is empowered by the authority of Christ. His power to carry it out. Sometimes discipline is very hard. You have to confront someone and you're unsure of yourself and you're nervous. And you just have to say, Lord, I need your power to be bold, to do what I'm supposed to do. And his power becomes the support, see, with the power of our Lord Jesus. And just to confirm that in your mind, Paul appears to be referring to the end of Matthew 18 where Jesus is giving authority to his disciples and encouragement and power. In Matthew 18, 18, he says this, Truly I say to you, Jesus speaking to his disciples and on down to every other disciple, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, just as a footnote, you've probably heard people use that verse for every conceivable thing. Some people will say, we bind Satan. And, and we loose the Holy Spirit. Do you see Satan anywhere in the context of this passage? No. What does that even mean to, to say we bind Satan? You know, if it takes an angel from heaven, perhaps Michael himself, to come and bind Satan before the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, it doesn't seem consistent then with what we know about the realm of Satan's influence to say that the average believer could just bind Satan just all by himself. Okay? So we're not talking about Satan. Okay? And we're loosing the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit here anywhere in this passage? No. Do we need, here's the thing. Do we need to loose the Holy Spirit? Is he waiting for us and say, well, if they just loose me, I'd get going and work in the life of the believer? No. That's not consistent, is it? First, it doesn't have anything to do with Satan. It doesn't have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Okay? The binding and loosing have to do with two kinds of justice. You bind anybody, they're guilty. You loose them, they're innocent. It has to do with the church as it evaluates sinfulness because this is the context of this entire passage in Matthew 18. Jesus' emphasis is simply this, as it relates to discipline. Whatever your decision of justice is in the church, it will be agreed upon where? In heaven. The Lord is strengthening their resolve, and he's saying, you know, don't be afraid to act in discipline. Heaven has already acted. Whatever you bind on earth shall already have been bound where? In heaven. When the church acts in discipline, heaven's Heaven acts in support of the church. He knows there's going to be a lot of worry. He knows there's going to be a lot of lost sleep and anxiety. And I can certainly attest to that myself. But he says, act, and heaven acts with you. And then in verse 19, he says, And again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them but my Father, by my Father who is in heaven. For verse 20, where two or three are, have gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. And again, these verses are dealing with the passages above. Okay? 
They're not two or three coming together and agreeing to you know, do some certain project. It has to do in the context, has to do with discipline, has to do with forgiveness, has to do with confronting sin, all those kinds of things, and the authority Christ gives to the church to do those things and for them to feel comfortable that as they act in a spirit-controlled manner, consistent with what they understand about the Word of God, then they're doing that with the full force of Christ's support and the full agreement of heaven. They're in the process, that's the support of the process that Jesus just gave them in order to keep the church pure. And it is helping disciples to understand that when the church comes together for discipline, it has the tremendous promise that Christ is in the midst. So Paul just calls on that understanding here in 1 Corinthians 5, and he just says, listen, you know, the power of Christ is there when you assemble. So Paul says, you know, I'll come and agree with you in spirit, and Jesus will be there, uh, but you gather together in his name and in his power, you deliver that one to Satan. Now we said, Paul's referring to, to church this one, to excommunication. And now he says back, uh, this back in verse 5, and he describes what happens on the spiritual side in this process. Verse 5 says this, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. I have decided, he said, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, how does discipline work? And once again, uh, we saw last time, this is the proper response, the proper attitude, mourning over open sinfulness in the church. Uh, the proper response, removal. And this is what the rest of that process looks like. So he says to deliver such a one to Satan. That just means, and this is this fifth uh, important observation, put someone into the realm of Satan. And the realm of Satan is the world. And if you remember 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John says this, we know that we are of God, that's believers, and that the whole world, that's those who are not believers, lies in the power of the evil one. So the cosmos, the world, and its system that are under the power of Satan. So you're delivering somebody from this protection that is found inside the assembly into the world. That's the spiritual realm. That's what's going on. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse um, 1. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. So that really gives a great snapshot of what the world looks like and where we used to be. See? The one with temporary dominion over this world is the one who's currently in charge of all the unredeemed. We used to walk in that world, in that cosmos, but we don't walk there anymore because now we under, we're under a new master. So this wording gives some wonderful insight to the importance of the church in the life of the believer. And I want to point this out because we've probably forgotten how special that is. Because to put someone, catch this, into the realm or the dominion of Satan is to put them out of the realm or the dominion of Christ and the church. So you catch that? So it's, it can't be both. You can't be inside the realm of the church and the protection and the blessing and also inside the realm of Satan because part of the spiritual process and discipline is removing them from fellowship. So it implies that there is a protection and a security associated with one, being a believer, and two, being part of those who assemble together as the local church. So when Paul instructs them to deliver such a one to Satan, it really involves removing them from membership as a result of discipline. They've been part of the assembly, and now they will no longer be allowed to be part of the assembly. That's why we see earlier in 2 Thessalonians, don't even associate with that person. Why? Don't eat with them. Why? They're walking in disobedience. And part of the blessing of being a believer is part of the blessing of fellowship, and part of the discipline that comes when you walk uh, in an unruly manner is to be outside of that fellowship, not as an enemy, but withholding the blessing that comes from Christian fellowship. At that point, they've been put into the realm of Satan. Now again, you know, I'm taking you to each of these passages so that you can know that this is not my opinion, okay? This is a very difficult thing, beloved. And if you've had to go through this, you will find a heartache that you have never had before and to the depth that you've never had it before. It's a hard thing to do. So Paul says that. Deliver them into this realm. He's been put out of the church into the cosmos, into the world, if you will, in this case as a result of unrepentant immorality. So he's forfeited his right to the fellowship simply because his impurity stains the fellowship. And Paul will give an example of that in just a moment. Paul's not concerned about what most church people are thinking, well, he really needs to be or she really needs to be here now. Paul's not concerned about what the individual person needs right now. He's concerned about what the church needs 
a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, he says. So put that one out if they won't walk in obedience. So again, we don't want to trump what the Lord says to do by thinking somehow we're more, uh, we're more uh, flexible and more understanding than the Lord himself, you see. So this is how we work, and this, how this, and this is what's happened now to this individual in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, you see. A very difficult thing for the church, no doubt, created a lot of hardship. And anytime that happens, it always creates some waves, and people get their feelings hurt, and there's misunderstandings, and all kinds of stuff go on which is why we're going to look at some of the, the instructions of how to order this in such a way that the church knows what to do. This is why there's some harbored animosity in the church. This is why Paul is coming and saying, listen, I know some of you are still holding hard feelings against this individual. And you need to let that go because it's, this has run its course in 2 Corinthians 2. But as you look at this 1 Corinthians 5, this person's no longer part of the assembly. The fellowship he enjoyed is no longer his He's delivered over into this other realm. Satan is the prince of this world, the god of this age. He runs the world system, and that's where you send this individual. Is he a believer? Yes. In this context, he is a believer. And because he's a believer, people have a hard time understanding this, and they say, why would you do that? And the answer is because the Lord says to do it. And because he says the little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, it hurts the fellowship, it hurts the testimony of the church. And Paul will talk about that further in just a minute. But this is what Paul has happened to this individual in 2 Corinthians 2.6. This is the, the punishment that Paul says was inflicted by the majority. Now, as is our habit, let's look at a few biblical illustrations in the time we have left, and we'll be able to kind of, uh, I think, shore this up. We'll start with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. So Paul, speaking to Timothy telling them what to do in difficult situations. He says, this I command, uh, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So, actual situation in the church, Paul is talking about to Timothy, who is a young pastor in Ephesus. He says, listen, I've had to do this to these two guys. And the individuals at Corinth, they, he, he was being put out for unrepentant immorality. They, the, what we saw in 2 Thessalonians was an unruly life, not living in accordance with what we understand is handed down from the scriptures. Here, these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are being put out for unrepentant teaching of false doctrine. So they kept teaching a certain thing that was inconsistent with what doctrine should be taught. And so he did the same thing. He put them out of the church and sent them into the realm of Satan, the ultimate act of discipline for the purity of the church. And then Paul did this and then turned around and left and, and left Timothy in charge uh, to appoint elders and straighten everything out. So Paul didn't even stay there long enough for the backlash inevitably that would occur and all the, all the backbiting that would occur from Hymenaeus and Alexander and all the misunderstanding from a few in the church who put their own feelings and what they thought was appropriate above what the Lord says and all that stuff he just says, Timothy, this is what I did and this is why I did it. Here you go. Appoint some elders, take care of the whole thing, follow through. So, Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Paul gives this instruction to Titus, who was likely pastoring in Crete at the time, uh, to help him with trouble he must have been facing there. Titus had those in the church that just wanted to argue. Uh, they wanted to stir up trouble. And there's always people like that in the church. All they want to do is, is disagree with, with whatever the leaders want to do. I mean, that, it just, it's, this is their general response. And the first thing is to put their foot down and say, no, I don't want to do this. Without, without considering perhaps what perhaps they could do, some things that could change and make things better, uh, not thinking about perhaps it, a lot of thoughts been put into it. Paul, uh, Paul says, Timothy, th these are the kinds of people you're going to find inside the church. It's always in the church. So Paul gives an abbreviated instruction that ends up in the very same way. He says, reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul says, after you've gone through this process, see, remove this person from any further influence. There's going to be a process of warning, and then it's just like, okay, well, you can't be here anymore, see, because it's just negatively influencing the church. And so we see this actually in action. So, and Paul giving it to his sons in the, in the faith is saying, listen, this is how this works, see. Now back to verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, so I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for here's the next part, the destruction of his flesh. And we've talked about this many times. In fact, not too long ago, we spoke about suffering for wickedness sake. Do you remember? We talked about suffering as we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we see that that's a common uh, thing that happens. Sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, and the comfort of Christ are ours also in abundance. But we said, Peter says, make sure no one suffers as an evildoer. And so just as uh, 
just to, as an addendum to what we talked about, we looked at what it would mean to suffer as an evildoer. As a believer, you can do things in your life, sinful things that the Lord chastens you for, and you'll find yourself suffering as a believer but for doing wickedness. And so here, what we have is, is, is the uh, very similar uh, types of things. I think we even use this as an example. This a turning over for the destruction of the flesh. And this is the part where we have trouble. The real you is fit for heaven. See, the new you is on the inside. And the spirit here, the internal part of you, and the flesh is the external part of you. So the outside awaits transformation. See, this outside, I can't get there with this. But inside, I'm new, and I'm ready to go inside, but outside, I'm still battling against the flesh. And this is the part that's the unredeemed part. This is the part that Satan's going to have access to. This is everything including it, included in being mortal. So you can just kind of add the stuff, the body, everything connected to it, generated by it, the thought process, your, your brain and how it works, and your emotions, and all the kinds of things that are connected to this flesh, okay? So Satan will be given a judicial right, then, from God to afflict this individual in the flesh, in the physical body. And again, this is the person we're talking about, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now, just as a footnote, we, we have a numerous biblical examples of what that looks like, but the one we think of, I might think most quickly, right, is who? Job, right. And so, you know, circumstances for the affliction now are not the same, because we know that Job was sinless, right? And the Lord said he's righteous and upright in all his ways. So he wasn't being punished as an evildoer. He, the Lord was proving a heavenly point. He's like, have you looked at earth and seen my men? And Satan's like, yeah, I see them. Uh, they're all a bunch of wicked people. And the Lord says, well, Job isn't. I mean, look at Job. And he's like, oh, yeah, Job's, Job's just fine because you've blessed him. He's rich and he has a big family. And take away all that stuff and he'll curse you. The Lord says, no, he won't. Go ahead. So proving a heavenly point. So the, the illustration is not the same exactly except for the access that Satan had. So Satan was allowed to have access to Job in Job 2, and the end result would be the same. See, how was he allowed to afflict Job? Was he allowed to kill Job? No, in fact, the Lord says you're not allowed to take his life. Was he allowed to take the life of Joel's loved ones? Yeah, secondarily, wasn't he? he? He afflicted Job in the flesh to the point where he felt like he wanted to die, and yet still didn't curse the Lord. And so, and so uh, you know, uh, he goes back up and you know, Satan says, yeah, well, you know, take away his family and all that stuff, and he'll curse you. And so that, the, whole, the whole next, the next process, see, so he, took, he takes the life of Joel's loved ones. Uh, was he allowed to access Job's soul, his inner man? No. You know, the, the only thing Satan was allowed to afflict was the body, and of course Job's mind and, and his feelings were afflicted as well because that's part of being human. Uh, but he was never in any danger of being cast away spiritually. Only the outside was made available, and that's what Satan did. And so that's, the, I think, the, the best idea or the picture where we can understand what's supposed to happen. That's the illustrative point. For this believer in Corinth, even though he's delivered over to the realm of Satan for a specific purpose, it's for the destruction of his flesh, so his whole lifetime may be one of physical anguish from that time on. His whole lifetime may be one of physical pain. Uh, the rest of his life, at, at some point from that point on, may be physical suffering. It may be the, the, the difficulties with his family. It could be that his family is brought into hardship or perhaps death. It could be all kinds of things connected to that, see? Because uh, even though Satan is given this job to do for this believer, there's nothing to fear ultimately because we're talking about a believer here in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5. And Satan can't touch the, his relationship to Jesus. The real him, the redeemed spirit, can't be corrupted, ruined, or destroyed. Why? Well, that's who's kept by whom. The real you is kept by Christ. And so Satan has no access to the real you. He's just going to have access to this gentleman in his physical body. Well, why? Well, because the verse ends like this. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we're talking about a believer walking in open rebellion. He won't listen to the warnings that come from the church and from those who are over him and the elders. And he continues to walk that way. And the church is told he's put out of the church for the destruction of the flesh that the soul may be saved. So Paul makes it clear to the church that their path needs to be and what the results will be in, of this action. And ultimately, the idea of discipline is not retribution, it's restoration and the change of behavior. Okay, so it's not somehow you're judging someone by doing this. You're doing what the Lord said to do so that he can bring the flesh of this individual under the persecution that will perhaps come from Satan so that that person will turn. And that's number seven is this process, the, the purpose of repentance and reconciliation. That's what we're looking for, see, to save the testimony. When Paul said, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme, the key to the idea that discipline is intended to bring is about change. 
See, they'll be taught not to what? To teach false doctrine. They won't stop doing what they're doing. They've been warned several times. They've been put out from the church. So Satan will teach them in the flesh not to continue in false doctrine. See. And this gentleman here, 1 Corinthians 5, will be taught in the flesh not to walk in open immorality. You see? So Hymenaeus and Alexander had to be taught not to do that anymore, and it's likely the same scenario here in Corinth. He's being turned over, so we'll learn how not to be immoral. And whatever it was that happened, because we don't have that, 2 Corinthians 2.6 indicates that he learned his lesson. So that's the encouraging part, that it actually works, and he was back. People were still holding on to, you were so bad. Why did you do what you did? They're still holding on to that, see? And that's what Paul's going to address here. And ultimately, as it relates to other deliberately sinful things believers may do in rebellion, the idea is that on the day of the Lord Jesus, when that day comes, that person will stand there with the redeemed, but they may pay a very high price physically to be there. See. But that's how discipline is to work. Put him out. God will use Satan as the rod of chastisement to perhaps destroy him physically, and Satan will be given his flesh, but his spirit will be delivered so that in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll appear with the redeemed. I think it's very consistent with what we see as Paul talks about what happens when you take, the, take communion incorrectly. And when the Lord has to judge you for taking it incorrectly, he says, but even in the judgment, it's proof that we're his because he loves us and we're sons and he chastens us. See? So they're very, very consistent, I think, across the board in, in uh, understanding of this passage. And again, as a footnote, I believe it's fair to say that this is how it's still supposed to work. Satan may mess up the body, but he can't touch the soul. God may bring about physical discipline. So as we prepare to close and, and, um, and close out our time as an application, you may say, well, What's that supposed to look like? How does the process go so that we do it correctly? And so we find that process early in Matthew 18. Now, Matthew 18 is a rich passage. And we've already looked at a section of it just a minute ago. We looked at a later section of it that has to do with forgiveness uh, a couple of weeks ago. So here, Matthew 18, verse 15, uh, is this process that Paul is referring to. He says this. And this, now, this applies to everyone, beloved, so understand how this is supposed to work. Now, if you came through the Be the Church class, we went through this with you as part of the big uh, section that has to do with life together, okay? Life together in the church will include bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, you know, comforting one another, meeting each other's needs, and all the wonderful things about fellowship. It also will include, you know, confronting each other when we, it appears that someone's in sin, okay? So Matthew 18 says this, and again, just after this passage, Jesus gives the disciples very much confidence that, Christ is with you on this. This is what you're supposed to do. When you agree about something, it's, a, it's already agreed in heaven. When you've understood what's true and what's false, that's already, uh, heaven's backing is there. You should be encouraged that you're doing what you're supposed to do, even though it feels terrible. But Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now, this is a sin issue, okay? Chapter and verse. An apparent sin issue. This is not preferences, this is not what you'd like to have happen in their life and what they want to have happen in their life or not what you want to have happen in the church and what uh, the leadership wants to go on. In the this has nothing to do with preferences. This is if your brother sins, okay? You know, preferences are the types of things you can, that come into play with a discipleship relationship. This is not a discipleship relationship. This is a brother or sister in Christ. This is an apparent sin issue and there's a chapter and verse that correspond with it. Now, in the course of pastoring, sadly, I've had to proceed through all these steps listed here, and this is a grievous thing. But I've also had many opportunities where this first step was sufficient, particularly uh, if it's an individual church member who sees another church member, and they just go right there and just say, hey, you know, this is what I saw, and um, this appears to be a parent sin issue, and I love you, and, and this is the wrong way to go. Don't go this way. That's the kind of, that's the kind of heartbroken, um, as if you've lost somebody who's close to you, mourning that goes on when you see stuff like that, okay? You go to them and you talk to them privately. That's the second part, okay? So chapter and verse, sin issue, you go to them and you talk to them privately. That doesn't mean you go to somebody else first and say, hey, I think I saw this person do X. What should I do? Okay, when people come to me and say, I have a, I have a, a problem with something somebody's doing, I'm like, whoa, okay? If it's not me, then you need to go to that person first. I, I don't want to hear that. Okay, because it's not as big as me yet. Okay, it's only as big as you and that person. So sin issue, you go to them, talk to them privately. It's only as big as you and that individual. You're making sure it's a sin issue, and you're making sure it's not a misunderstanding, and you haven't mis, 
misunderstood what was happening there or it hasn't been misrepresented somehow to you, okay? And, you know, just without any names, a number of, a number of years ago in another church, uh, there was a young couple in our church. And the individual, uh, the guy, um, was womanizing and it was a parent. And I got a call from his wife and said that this person was uh, in a bar hanging out with some ladies who were not his wife. And I stopped there and I went in. And I'm sure the last thing he thought he was going to see in that place when I tapped him on the shoulder was my face. And that's the last thing I wanted to do and the last place I wanted to be. And I asked him to step over with me privately and I poured my heart out to him and said, I am so grieved that I have to be here and you know what you're doing and I know what you're doing. Please stop doing this. You're married and you have children. And this is your wife you're betraying and you're betraying your testimony and the whole thing's going to blow up and it's not going to be like you think it's going to be. Please stop. And I left. Did you know like a week later he came to my office repenting in tears and asked for forgiveness from his wife? First step. That's all it, that's all it took, beloved. It's so powerful for you to not be quiet and to not just sit and not worry about it. So important. And these are the ways the church stays pure. This is, we're seeing this action actually in the church now. See, Jesus gives this information and then Paul puts it to work in the church and shows those who are his spiritual sons. This is what you have to do, see. So, chapter and verse in issue, go to talk to him privately, verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So, again, just to make sure all the points are clear, these are people who have witnessed the sin issue. This isn't an opportunity to gossip. These are others who've witnessed the sin issue and are grieving about it, mourning the loss of a loved one, like we're supposed to be grieving when we know sin has happened. And they go, and perhaps they'll go separately at first. So one will go, they don't know where the other person's going. And another person sees it, they'll go, and they don't know the other person is gone. But that process is working its way out because everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, see? And... and they don't know the others are going first, but eventually they'll go together and confirm everything. The Lord kind of puts that together. He does that every time, see. He reveals it in ways we didn't know it would be revealed. Again, you know, another illustration, I, I was telling somebody about this a couple weeks ago. In the church where I was pastoring, there was, I had another pastor on staff who, whose wife was being unfaithful to him. We didn't know. So I'm living in a very large city with eight million people in that county. This young woman went to a place far from our church, 30 some miles, to go out to lunch with this individual. And the Lord had another church member in the business across the street that saw them get out of the car, join hands, and walk into the restaurant. See, the Lord, Lord's concerned about the purity of his people. See, And he wants the church to be pure. And, and you can't think if you're a believer, somehow you're gonna be able to do whatever you wanna do and nobody's gonna find out. Somebody's going to find out because the Lord wants a pure church and he wants you to walk circumspectly to him. He wants you to search out what's pleasing to him. He wants you to be seeking uh, to do what and, and mimic him and be like him. See? So again, you know, I could give you illustration after illustration how this works out correctly, how the Lord uses individual spiritual people to go and, and do what they're supposed to do. But anyway, so he won't listen to you. Take two more every everything firmly established they confirm everything paul talked about the hard approach that this requires in galatians chapter 6 verse 1 he says this he says brethren even if anyone is caught in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted the entire effort all of it is one of restoration every attempt every contact with gentleness with firmness with humility with grief see and then it says in verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and so the idea that where that process goes is it's brought to the elders, the elders tell the church. And the idea here is that the combined, catch this, beloved, it's not to embarrass the person, okay? It's the combined witness of a grieving church, all desiring the individual to return to godly living that may make the difference, see? 
And it also kind of solves all the backbiting and all the undercurrent and all the gossip that goes on. Well, what, how come they're not here? And you see the person at the store, and you haven't seen them at church for six weeks. Oh, what happened? How come you're not here with us? And nobody knows the story. They don't know what's going on there. Oh, you should come back. You know, uh, did somebody offend you? Are you feeling bad? You know, you know, come back, come back. You know, they don't know anything about it. So the church is clear, see? This person's not just, you know, they didn't get offended, and now they're out there, you know, they don't want to come back, whatever. This is what's going on. They're in open sin, see? So the church knows everything's firmly established. This is exactly what's going on, see? Again, why? For restoration, for repentance, all of those kinds of things, see? The entire, an entire effort is one of restoration. Every contact, every, every attempt with gentleness, firmness, humility, grief, truth, see? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, then it's brought to the elders, the elders tell the church, and at the combined grieving church, and if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let it be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, exactly the same type of thing we see in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. The Lord gives these instructions to tell the church. The idea is that they are acting like an unredeemed person because they won't turn away and, 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 and they won't listen to the pleading of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And the closest ones to them start it. The ones who know them best and perhaps have seen them earliest start the whole thing. They won't listen. They won't turn away. Uh, and so they won't do what they're supposed to do. So if that is what they're acting like, then the church is then to treat them that way. Not as an enemy, see, but like a Gentile, an unredeemed, unsaved person or a tax collector, see. And you have to remember, you know, tax collectors in the Bible were different than they are today. You know, if you, if you work for the IRS, you're probably a great person, okay? But I'm, not, I'm not bringing any kind of disrepute to you. But in the first century, tax collectors a lot of times were, um, took a big cut for themselves. They were crooks. Because Loris Lerner probably fit inside that, um, that definition. The idea here is that if you put a person out, you, know, you treat them like an evangelization project because they're acting like an unredeemed person. Okay? They're in the realm of the world. And so when the church then deals with this person, you're dealing with them as if they don't know Christ. You're like, you know, Hey, this is what the word. This is what the word says. You know, walk this way. It's where the blessing is. You know, as if they didn't know anything. Because most of the time, you, you'll talk to that person and they'll say, "I already know all that stuff." I'm, you know, this is just what I'm going to do. You know, just so absurd types of comments. If you really knew this, would you walk in disobedience to the Lord in that way? No, of course not. So, the word of God is very clear. The approach is to be made. This is something that we're we're supposed to deal with. And then He says uh, to them, "You." You know, you should not be going along, oh, this, you know, isn't our church great? Look how accommodating we are, you know. We don't need, yeah, your involvement here, Paul, you know. Don't worry about this, you know, we got this, you know, handled, you know, whatever they were saying. You know, you can imagine how many churches are in that very identical situation, right? I mean, they're saying, you know, boy, this church is really growing, you know, God's blessing, and, you know, we're doing this, and we're doing that, and, you know, things are so great. We have the gifts of the Spirit, you know, all that wonderful stuff's going on, and other things happening. And Paul, if Paul was around, he'd say, yeah, there's immorality, right, in your congregation, you're doing nothing about it. You've ordained someone who's walking in open immorality and, and you think everything's great. See? And there's rebelliousness and there's unruliness and there's people who are constantly backbiting and there's people who are constantly gossiping and you think everything's fantastic. Also, listen, everything is not fantastic. You've got you to fix this. And you do it interpersonally, see? Hey, don't say that, you know? person comes up and begins to gossip or, 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 or uh, you know, complain. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't do that. Well, you know, let no, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what was edifying, right? I don't, you know, this is how this works in the church. This is how the church stays pure. See, it's, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? I, I get it. You know, and Paul says, you know, you're puffed up, you're waltzing along there as some kind of spiritual bliss. They were all, they were all proud and whatever, so progressive. You're not dealing with a cancer that threatens to destroy the internal work of the church and the cumulative witness of everybody, see? So when they try the church, it's hard on everyone, it's hard on everything, and that's not uncommon, you know, when things like this go on. I'm sure, you know, it's going on all the time. It wasn't just Corinth, see? It's, ha it's happened, as we saw in other first century churches. Many other places continues to happen today. It's happened in churches I've pastored. And, and, and dealing with this is the obligation of every believer. I think if you walk out, you should know that. Um, and after the second communication with the church in Corinth, they finally acted, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 6, he says, sufficient for such a one, catch this. He goes, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So he wrote that first letter, and that was, the, that was one that we don't have a copy of. And then he had to write that second letter, which is 1 Corinthians 5. It says, listen, I've told you what to do. Do this. And so at some point along that way, which we don't have record of, they had done it. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment inflicted by the majority. So it got to the church level, and they put the person out. 
And that makes sense. See, they, they, the church was told that collectively they regarded the individual and his evangelization prospect, and, and we don't know what happened to him in the realm of Satan. And Paul says, you know, there was enough punishment. Epitomia, it's an interesting word. The punishment inflicted by the majority. Originally, that was a word that signified the rights and privileges of citizenship. But it was interesting, the word changed in its use, and the word, it became a word used of of an estimate of time fixed by the judge for penalty for infringement of those rights. So first it was the rights of the individual, and then it was like, this will be the time you'll serve for what you did wrong. And this is the way Paul uses it here. It's sufficient for, for uh, such a one is this epitomia, this, this punishment, this inf- you've infringed on what you were supposed to do, the church did what it was supposed to do, and so punishment commensurate with the infringement happened, Paul says. What you did was right. It was so difficult and hard on everyone, but right now, Paul says, we have to move to forgiveness. See? And that's this wonderful swoop upward where we go through this and we realize, hey, this is a very difficult time for this church in Corinth. It's a difficult time for every church that has to deal with it. The church has to deal with it on the individual level and on up. It's everybody's responsibility to walk in purity. And it's everybody's responsibility to help others walk in purity. This is what the Lord wanted in a pure bride. And then you see this, you get into 2 Corinthians 2, and you kind of swoop back up, we can get out of this, all of this, this hard, difficult stuff, and we see, hey, this worked. What you did was right, it was difficult, it was hard, but now we have to move to forgiveness. And the next words are just so wonderful, and we'll get to them next time. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So in other words, they're already feeling very sorrowful for what? For the sinfulness they were involved with. And no doubt, whatever happened in the realm of Satan where the, the flesh was attacked, perhaps to get his attention. So much sorrow, much shame involved in it, uh, much repentance and, and desiring forgiveness and all that stuff. And still now there's some in the church who are remembering what went on. Paul says, listen, no. You did what you were supposed to do, and we're going to move to this forgiveness. We don't want him overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And that's the way the church is supposed to work, see? This open arms, hey, you want to repent, come back, come on. You know, come in. And obviously it has a direct application to church discipline. It also has so much application to everyday relationships with offenses and misunderstandings and forgiveness sought and forgiveness given. And we'll look at all those, uh, Lord willing, next week. All right? So we went a little bit long. We have dinner waiting for us downstairs. So, uh, you know, you can, you can enjoy yourself down there. Let's pray and be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for the opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the wonder of it for the difficulty of it. You've given us some jobs to do, which perhaps we've ignored uh, in, in our life. Maybe we've, we've known stuff is going on. We're, we're not coming in, loving, in a loving manner and going to someone with this, this sin issue, not a preference issue, but this sin issue, whatever it is, and, and saying to the, to the individual, listen, I love you. Please don't do this. This is not what the Lord would have for you. You're headed to, to, to sorrow. You're headed to shame. You're headed to all the things that are being consumed and, and devoured in your sin. Don't do this. Lord, I pray that we'll be about that. Be the kind of church that pursues discipline uh, if it's needed, pursues love and forgiveness uh, when we should, and, and has the right proportions of all those kinds of things. Lord, establish us, I pray, uh, firm us up in your word each day that we might be able to root out those things that are camouflaged in our lives that are displeasing to you. See if there be any wicked way, David said, in me, and lead me on the way everlasting. And Lord, I pray that you'll just have your word root those things out, help it to confirm the things that we, uh, we love are of you, that we're not being stamped in the image of this world, but instead uh, being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And even in this area, as it deals with, with what to do inside the church when these things happen, that will be renewed in our mind, not somehow trumping the Lord's uh, requirements by our own uh, generosity and, and, uh, and magnanimity. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that you are to us. We thank you for your son who was offered willingly on the cross for us and resurrected on the third day to prove the payment was sufficient. Thank you for the Holy Spirit given to us as our resident encourager and, and convictor of sin and one that helps us understand your word. Thank you for the blessings that come that are all ours in the spiritual realm for those who know you. Help us to be in the process as you would have it through your word of sanctification that we might become more and more uh, like a reprint of your son that we might uh, see these things and know what's pleasing to you and pursue those things we pray this uh, as a church corporately we pray this individually and all God's people said Amen <laughs>